Is the transatlantic relationship irreparably damaged? A few weeks ago in Brussels, GMF and Intelligence Squared joined forces to host a debate that tackled this very timely and very existential question. While Out of Order takes a brief summer hiatus, we're sharing the full debate here on our feed. Listen and decide where you stand. We hope you enjoyed this special episode, and we're excited to resume Out of Order in just a few weeks. Hi, everybody. I'm John Donvan, host and moderator of Intelligence Squared U.S. Debates. And in this live debate, we have two teams ready to battle it out over one question, which we call a motion or a resolution. The debaters are experts who have spent years, even decades, thinking about the question on the table. This debate will go in three rounds, and then our live audience will decide which team wins. It's a competition, a competition of ideas. Let's get started. 70 plus years, that is how long Europe and the United States have held together one of the most impressive and historic strategic partnerships ever. Frequently, it's been quarrelsome, but basically, it's been fundamentally a family. But might that be about to change in this era of populism taking root in Europe and other places, and in the United States, some people using the slogan, America first, or is it fundamentally still sound, shared values and common interests, and most of all, trust? I'm John Donvan. This is Intelligence Squared US. We are at the German Marshall Fund's annual Brussels Forum. We will take on these questions by putting on a debate around this resolution. The transatlantic relationship has been irreparably damaged. And if all goes well, civil discourse will also prove triumphant. Let's meet our debaters. Please, ladies and gentlemen, welcome Federica Bindi. Federita, you're a professor at the University of Rome Tor Vergata, a scholar at the Carnegie Endowment, director of the Foreign Policy Initiative at the Institution for Women Policy Research. You advised four different Italian governments so far, published a lot of books most recently, Europe and America, the end of the transatlantic relationship, question mark. Thanks so much for being here with us. Thank you so much for Thanks, having Federita. me. Thanks, Federita. Let's meet your partner, please. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, Constance Steltzenmuller. Hi, Constance. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. Thank you. You're an expert in transatlantic relations, German foreign policy. You're a senior fellow at the Center on the United States and Europe at Brookings. Before that, you are a senior transatlantic fellow and Berlin office director with the German Marshall Fund. It's great to have you here. Thank you. Now, That's let's great. meet the team arguing against the resolution. Please first welcome John Mearsheimer. Hi, John. You've debated with us a few times before, so I want to say welcome back. Glad to be here, John. Uh, you're a professor at University of Chicago, a political scientist, a New York Times bestselling author. Your most recent book is The Great Delusion, Liberal Dreams, and International Realities. John, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. And your partner, please, ladies and gentlemen, welcome, Carla Norloff. Hi, Carla. You're author of America's Global Advantage, U.S. Hegemony, and International Cooperation. You're an associate professor of political science at University of Toronto. Uh, you research international cooperation with a special focus on great powers. Thanks so much for joining us at the Brussels Forum. Thank you. Here they are, ladies and gentlemen, the four debaters getting ready to start on this resolution. The transatlantic relationship has been irreparably damaged. Let's move on to the debate. As I said before, we go in three rounds, and round one is comprised of opening statements that will be made by each debater in turn. And up to speak first, for the resolution, the transatlantic relationship has been irreparably damaged. Federica Bingi, professor at the University of Rome, Tor Vergata. For the past two days, all we have been saying was, yes, we have problems, 
in the transatlantic relations, but we're going to fix them. And Constance and myself are going to argue exactly the contrary. Unfortunately, this is beyond fixable. So if we look back, we see highs and lows in the relationship. Example of the highs are certainly the post-World War II period or the period right after 9-11, the only time Article 5 has ever been invoked. If we look at the lows, Middle East has been an issue of content for a long time. Think of the differences on the Arab-Israeli war, the slowness and difficulties with which Europeans responded to the USSR invasion of Afghanistan, or martial law in Poland, or Sigonella, or the differences over the Moscow Olympics. So there were lots of troubles, which, of course, I know you're thinking, see, we had troubles before. We're going to fix them once again. But no. In my opinion, it goes back to one special year, 1989. So for the little history, in 1989, I was an undergraduate at Sciences Po. So Sciences Po organized these conferences every Thursday afternoon. Alfred Grosser, who was a specialist of Germany, would comment current affairs. And it was the 9th of November, 1989, two minutes before 7. And Alfred Grosser was finishing his pitch. And he said, you know, maybe, maybe in two decades, maybe communists won't be there anymore. We don't know. And in that moment, the Berlin Wall came down. And what came down in that moment was the amphitheater. You know, imagine 2,000 kids, all nationalities, screaming, hugging, kissing. The Germans were crying. I mean, I still have goosebumps when I think about it. It was the defining political event of a generation, one that changed us forever. And then I went on to do my PhD at the UI, and I started teaching American kids in Florence. The kids were referring to 1989 as the year we won the Cold War. I was like, no, 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 no. what are you talking about? There is no winner. That's the end of an anomaly in history. But then I went to the US, and I realized that that was part of a general narrative, a narrative on which neocon like Wolfowitz or, or Pearl jumped in to advocate for a unilateral world where, unipolar world where the US, the winner of the Cold War, would had a right duty to intervene. And once they got the chance to go into government with GW, they actually enacted that. But you know, bridges had been teared down. And then came Obama. And remember his triumphal tour in Europe organized by our former colleague, Phil Gordon? The Europeans loved Obama. But the fact that they loved Obama, the person, did not mean they loved American policies. By that, 20 years of rather useless wars had mined what Woodrow Wilson referred to as American moral exceptionalism. And what I've never been able to properly explain to my American colleagues and friends, it's the American moral exceptionalism, the American dream, Hollywood, public diplomacy programs like GMF, Fulbright, the State Department visitors, any of the Europeans who had not been on one of those programs, raise your hands. I mean, this is what made us dream about the US. This is what Fede Mogherini referred to as why we got in love with the US. The real strength of the US is this imaginario. And with the words, the imaginario was no more there. With people and in politics alike, it takes a lot of work to earn respectability, to earn trust. And it takes a gift to lose it. And to rebuild it, it takes a long time.
Thank you, Federico Bindi. Um, our resolution, again, is the transatlantic uh, relationship has been irreparably damaged. Our next debater will be speaking against the resolution. Please welcome from the University of Toronto, Professor Carla Norloff. We are in strong agreement that the transatlantic relationship is not irreparably damaged. I am going to be focusing on the American interests underpinning the relationship. John will be discussing European interests. I think it helps to go back to defining what the transatlantic relationship is. It's a political security community, a zone of peace in which disagreements are settled peacefully without recourse to war. The primary institutional expression of this zone of peace, of this community, is NATO. In order for the transatlantic relationship to collapse, we basically need to see a collapse of NATO. That's not happening. President Trump is a threat and has threatened the relationship. We do not deny that. But he is unlikely to follow through on the most important threats, because it's not in the United States' interest to do so. The United States has profound security interests in maintaining the relationship. NATO isn't a burden. It's a pillar of US power. NATO is the blue chip in the United States' vast global security network. In fact, it's one of the primary advantages that the United States has and will have long term against systemic rivals like China and Russia. Europeans are also increasingly doing the kinds of things that the United States wants them to do. It's increasingly aligning on US foreign policy uh, objectives, labeling China a systemic rival, for instance, ramping up the fight against terrorism, increasing defense spending. Even if President Trump wanted to pull the United States out of NATO, Congress, his closest advisors, overwhelmingly continue to support NATO. Economically as well, there are extraordinarily powerful links between the United States and Europe. In fact, it's the largest trade and investment relationship in the world. You will say, well, what about the looming trade war? The United States trade deficit with the European Union is $150 billion. That's half the size of the United States trade deficit with China. It's not worth a trade war, especially not one that the United States is unlikely to easily win. There's another important wedge issue and it's the Iran nuclear deal crisis, uh, which kind of blends economic and security issues. Europeans want to maintain the deal. The United States wants to abandon the deal. And in order to pressure Europeans to abandon the deal, the United States has imposed sanctions on Europeans doing business with Iran. In the long term, however, it's counterproductive because it discourages the use of dollars and it encourages other countries to devise alternative payment systems, as the Germans have 
begun efforts to do. When we talk about the transatlantic relationship, we really take for granted that we're talking about America on the one hand, and on the other side, we're talking about countries north of Spain. We're not talking about African countries also facing the Atlantic. There's a strong perception of common values and a strong desire to maintain a shared European ancestry. And I think that this is a very powerful generator of a we feeling that is essential to keeping this community alive. Carla Norloff, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Toronto, author of America's Global Advantage. She is arguing against this motion. The transatlantic alliance has been irreparably damaged. I'm John Donvan. We'll have more opening statements in just a moment. This is Intelligence Squared U.S. And a reminder of where we are, we are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two teams of two, fighting it out over this resolution. The transatlantic relationship has been irreparably damaged. You've heard the first two opening statements, and now on to the third. I give the floor to Constanze Stelzemüller, senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. What I'm going to describe to you is my worst-case vision of a dawning dystopia of international relations. A disordering so profound, an unraveling of order so dramatic, including its transatlantic pillar, that we are incapable of turning it back. In the United States, I see high stakes, high risk, simultaneous brinksmanship on several continents at the same time. Breathtaking. On top of that, a US administration using or threatening instruments of economic coercion, tariffs and sanctions, like no administration has done before. Not in this quantity, not in this quality, not, as far as we can see, with so little of an ultimate plan. And I don't see America winning. In fact, for now, I see it losing. What I do see is America alienating its allies and its friends. And what I fear, ultimately, is the undermining of American credibility and legitimacy across the globe. And that ought to strike fear into all of us. Now, I don't think the European side is much better. As we saw in the European elections, we've managed to keep the populists at bay, but barely, haven't we? The truth is that we have seen this continent gravely weakened, shaken by a series of successive crises following the global financial crisis. We are divided profoundly on matters of security, social welfare, and on matters of immigration. I see a Europe that is surrounded by mounting crises and conflict, and that appears to me to be speechless and powerless in the face of America first. So why is this time different? Why is this not the same as all the other crises that Federica just described to us? The disordering isn't just happening in faraway places of which we know nothing. Sea levels rising in the Seychelles or drug crises in Russian prisons. No, the disordering is happening at home. Rising social inequality, rising economic inequality, political polarization, and it seems to me a degradation of governance in the places where we feel them closest to home. Schools, hospitals, roads, bridges. And yes, of course, our national 
politics. Let's keep in mind that a German politician was murdered, the first political murder by right-wing extremists in the history of my country since 1945. I think I see us all paralyzed in face of the authoritarians and the populists, not the ones in Brazil and in China, but the ones at home, who are cheapening, denying, undermining the fundamental values of representative democracy and a rules-based international order. And it pains me to say this. The chief of these challengers is currently president of the United States of America. My concern is that what we are about to face is what you could call a silent spring of international governance. To borrow the title of a very famous book there by the American ecologist, Rachel Carson. A disordering so profound that we are unable to stop it and unable to turn it back. Thank you, Constance Stelzenmuller. And our final debater in this opening round will be speaking against the resolution, Chicago professor John Mearsheimer. What is the glue that holds the transatlantic relationship together? What's the glue? And our argument is that the principal glue are common interests. The United States on one side and the Europeans on the other side have a common interest in keeping the transatlantic relationship intact. Now, there's no question that values and trust matter. They're part of the glue, for sure. Interests almost always trump trust and values. That's because statesmen are mainly concerned with the prosperity and security of their citizens, and they will do what is ever necessary to protect those citizens. In 1941, December 1941, the United States allied itself closely with the murderous regime of Joseph Stalin in the Soviet Union. Why did we do that? Because it was in our interest for the purpose of defeating Nazi Germany. We sacrificed values for interests. Think about America's relationship today with Saudi Arabia our long-standing relationship with Saudi Arabia. Is there any country on the planet that has values that are more antithetical to American values? I can't think of one, maybe North Korea. But in the case of Saudi Arabia, we have had remarkably close relations with them for a really long time because it's in our interest. Why did we ally with Joe Stalin? Because it was in our interest. Now, this is not to deny that there are certain cases where your values and your interests line up. But when your interests and your values clash, you go with your interests. So what really matters here, when we think about whether or not this transatlantic relationship is going to hold over time, is the question of whether we both, the Americans and the Europeans, have a vested interest in keeping this thing intact. First of all, it's in Europe's economic interest to continue to trade with the United States. It's in Europe's interest to think very carefully about how to deal with China and to work with the United States on the economic front to deal with China. The real reason is security. And the fact is that Europeans have a deep-seated interest in keeping the United States of America firmly implanted on the European continent. And I'm talking about the American military here. Many people wonder why there has been no war in Europe since the Cold War ended. Why has Europe been so peaceful? 
A lot of people say it's because of the EU and the success of the EU. This is fundamentally wrong. The reason there's been no trouble in Europe is because the United States is here. The United States serves as a pacifier. I have never heard a single European leader say that he or she would like to see the United States leave Europe. And in fact, when I tour Europe these days, what I find is that many European elites are worried that Uncle Sam is going home. Why? They'll rarely say it out loud because it's not politically correct. But they understand we are the pacifier. And keeping us here is very important for maintaining security in the heart of Europe. And for those of you who believe there's a Russian threat out there, and my experience is talking to European tells me that almost every one of you believes that, the fact is you want the Americans here, you want NATO here. You all understand that the American presence means NATO. You want NATO, you want the Americans here to deal with the Russians should they get aggressive in Eastern Europe. The Americans, given their view of their role in the world, and as you all know, we're very interested in running the world, right? And Europe is part of that whole enterprise. We have a deep-seated interest in staying here. America's interests and Europe's interests still match together to make a case keeping the Americans here and maintaining the transatlantic relationship for the foreseeable future. Thank you, John Mearsheimer. And that concludes the first round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate where our resolution is the transatlantic relationship has been irreparably damaged. Now we move on to round two, and round two is where the debaters speak with one another directly and take questions from me and from you, our audience here in Brussels. On the side arguing for the resolution, Federica Bindi and Constanze Stotzenmüller, we have heard them describe the current situation as the silent spring of international governance. This time is different. The tenor of discord has reached levels never seen before. The elites are paralyzed in the face of those who are challenging the fundamentals of liberal democracy. And they point very specifically to what they describe as the problem of Donald Trump himself. The side arguing against the resolution, John Mearsheimer and Carla Norloff, argue it's not so different this time. Common interests will trump values, nor will the relationship dissolve, ultimately, they say, because it's just not in the interest of either side. On the United States side, there are too many economic links, and actually that that goes both ways, but that basically Europe also needs the United States here for its security, and that interest is just too strong to ultimately threaten the overall relationship. So there's a lot to dig into here. I want to start with a question going first to Federico Bindi. Um, your opponents have made the case, an interesting case, that commonality of interests, real politic interests, is so strong that that will ultimately prevail. Therefore, the relationship will persist in a healthy way. Zillions of years ago, I wrote my PhD thesis on the national interest. And the hardest part in writing about national interest, I compared clearly to case studies, Italy and Portugal at the time. But the hardest part is actually defining the national interest. Our opponents lay down a perfect rational analysis, which would make very happy some of our colleagues. But the reality is that the national interest not only is hard to define, and it changes across time and across circumstances. And at the end of the day, what counts more is not the interest per se, which is an esoteric term, but the perception of national interest. The, the question is that the perception of the US national interest had been, had been changing. All right, let me, I, let me take I, that to, to John. I just 
the vast majority of American policymakers and members of the foreign policy elite believe that the United States has a vested interest in maintaining peace in Europe. And by staying in Europe, we keep the peace. And there are two reasons for that. One is we believe that it is economically important to keep the peace in Europe, because if a war breaks out in Europe, that will have disastrous consequences for the international economy. And secondly, it's widely believed that we will get dragged in. So why not just stay there to begin with, prevent war, rather than leave and have to come back? You know, I'm completely convinced that it's in my interest to win the lottery and retire before time. But that doesn't mean it's going to happen. What we mean by interest is that there are some shared goals. There are security goals and there are economic goals. And we try to put a little bit of meat on the bones to describe what those look like. Sometimes values are more synonymous with something that resembles norms or principles. Constance, um, to a certain degree, there's a lot of overlap in what both sides are saying, but you have made this argument that what's going on is different this time. It's fundamentally different. So can you push Absolutely. that point in response to what you're hearing so right. far? Uh, two things. I want to push back with all due respect against John's point uh, that we need American military in Europe to stop us from killing each other. Forgive me, John, but that's ludicrous. It is actually insulting. I mean, you are surrounded here by Europeans who have grown up with each other, traveled in each other's countries, whose parents have married each other, and who were, have worked in each other's countries. Some of us have double nationalities. To say to us that we still need GIs in Europe so that this place won't explode is ludicrous. Well, then why do you want okay, NATO? No, no, because you need us too, and I'm coming to that. So I've been reading both of your papers. Yours bound to fail, yours several ones really good. Both of you talk about economic interdependence. You, in fact, point out, Carla, that economic independence works both ways. You seem not to be willing to consider that. The truth is that we are a great power economically, and you need us. And in fact, without us, you are weaker in the world with regards to China, with regards to Russia, and elsewhere. That supports our First point. point. No, no. First point. That's no, no, no. No, because you are destroying. You are trying to undermine the EU. Or not you, John Mearsheimer, but this American administration. I take that back. Well, let's, let's let them right. jump in a little okay. bit of response. No, wait, 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 wait. One final point, sure. if I may. Yeah. You also need us in terms in security terms. You have first order strategic interests in Europe that your troops in Europe protect, and you would be less able to protect them. You will be less able to pursue those goals if you weren't in Europe and if we weren't letting you. All right, Constance, I want you to yield to that a lot out there. I'll let your opponents respond to some of that. Look, I believe that the reason European elites, European policymakers, have been so deeply committed to maintaining NATO and are so afraid that NATO is going to collapse is they understand that the United States serves as a pacifier. This is exactly the American view that does not understand what the European Union is all about. <laughs> I'm sorry, you continue to see it as something completely different, so just an economic entity. It reminds me, remember when we were working on the single market? New York Times and other papers would write, oh, the single market is never going to happen because the Europeans are unable to do it. Euro. Oh, the Europeans were never going to have a euro because the Europeans are not. The Europeans had wars. We still have people who went through the wars. And there was a commitment never to do that again. And that came from the Europeans, by the Europeans. It was supported at the time by the American administration. This so, is what you did. So, you did so, Carl, yeah. Carl so I think that it's one thing to argue that Europe does not need the United States in order to prevent war amongst 
European countries. You follow but, me there. Yeah. <laughs> so, 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 but, but that's quite a separate question from Europe not having an interest in the United States being committed to NATO. Absolutely. Right, yeah. Because there is the Russian threat and there are other common goals that NATO through the United States can secure. And so it doesn't seem to me that you're actually addressing our main argument that there are these common security interests. So, I mean, I absolutely agree with you, Carla and John, that we have a common interest in maintaining NATO. Now, the problem is that this U.S. administration, not America overall, but this U.S. administration is doing things in security policy and in its trade policy that undercut the trust and cohesion of the alliance because they are increasing the insecurity of the world and of the region around Europe, thereby undermining European security, and because they are undermining actively and quite malignantly one of the key factors in European stability that backstops NATO in a lot of important ways, and that is the European Union. The European Union provides the political, social, and economic resilience that you need in a security environment where adversaries are using instruments short of war, hybrid warfare, propaganda, buying politicians, funding political parties, these kinds of things. Okay, and and uh, it's an act of self-harm because it undermines American interests. John Richard, can you respond to that? Your argument that President Trump is a problem is basically correct. I'm not going to defend his policies uh, with regard to you know, putting sanctions on allies in Europe, his attitude towards the EU, his attitude towards NATO. He is definitely a bull in a china shop. Nobody would deny that. But the question you have to ask yourself is just how much damage can he do? If anything, America is increasing its commitment to NATO. The United States is not in a position to destroy the European Union. It can cause some problems with tariffs, but there are even limits there. And the United States and President Trump are ultimately going to be forced to work with the Europeans to deal with the Chinese problem. I, I want to ask uh, Federica this question. So far, we've been arguing the questioning of common interests in a sort of real politic way, but they made an opening statement that the values, while they might matter, don't matter that much. A common commitment to liberal democracy, for example, which seems to be under threat in some parts of Europe and perhaps in some parts of the United States. Are you conceding their argument that the values are not the no, critical thing? The, the values is exactly what made the U.S. attractive to us, the beacon of hope. If you take the values away, there is nothing left. The interest changes across time. The national interest is linked to the moment. The values is a process that goes across centuries. And you think that is eroding as we speak? The, yes, the, it is. You, and you feel the same consequence? I do. Representative democracy is the system that has proven to be best at preventing cruelty, at preventing cruelty from the majority to minorities. And I, as a German, know whereof I speak. And so it is a system that I wish to preserve. And if I'm faced with an American president and other American officials who, on a daily basis, discredit those values, I have a problem. And, and I think that that also translates into a toxic relationship within NATO. And why might... May I, may I make the other, the other point? Sure. The other thing that we forget, I think, as we admire the authoritarians in Russia and China because somehow they seem to be keeping their countries together and we're afraid we're not. Representative democracies remain the best at recognizing the flaws in their systems and at repairing them. That is what we are best at. And if I am faced with allies 
who deny that fact, that divides us. Constance Deltzenmuller arguing that the transatlantic relationship has been irreparably damaged. Have American values eroded so much as to undermine cooperation with Europe? More coming up on Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan. This is Intelligence Squared U.S. Has the transatlantic relationship been irreparably damaged? We'll hear questions from the audience in just a moment. But first, here is Carla Noloff responding to the assertion from her opponents that the erosion of values is damaging America's transatlantic relationships. So I think that a lot of the fissures that you've pointed to within the United States, some of those problems also exist in European countries. Um, so inequality Absolutely. and populism, in particular extreme right populism, extreme right political parties, are very much a problem in Europe. What, what kind of values are you thinking about that have been so eroded that affect fundamentally this relationship? It's so hard to know where to start. <laughs> uh, just look at the news images from Vladimir Putin and President Trump sitting together and laughing about the fake news when 58 journalists have been murdered in the reign of Vladimir Putin. Journalists are at risk around the world, and the President of the United States and the President of Russia are laughing about this. How does that not under undermine the alliance? Okay, let's go to some audience questions. Again, if you just raise your hands, I'll start right in the front row, and a mic will come. If you can stand up and tell us your name, please. Um, my name is Jerry Green from uh, California. How permanent are the cultural consequences of a malignant administration which is only two years old and will not live forever? What's a great question. So you're saying this time it's different. The question is saying it might be different this time, but it's not going to last that long. What's your response to that? Well, I worry that the reasons that I just described are not limited to leaders and their personalities and their impact. I was talking about structural reasons. I was talking about the profound dysfunctionalities of our governance at home and our inability to repair them. And that's why I'm concerned that a change in government or in party in 2020 in the United States won't change the situation that we're in. Federica, you wanted to join. You know, the value of a presidency in the US goes beyond politics. It's an example. What we are witnessing today is a total change in ethics. And I can tell you, as a woman, you can feel it on your, on your skin. Things have changed. There are things that two years ago would be judged completely unacceptable. Today, nothing happens. I, think of the, I mean, think of the border. Think of the kids that have been separated who are dying in the custody of a government. I mean, two years ago, had it happened during the previous administration, it would have been a revolution. And today it's just, well, six kids is dead. God forbid this lasts six more years. There's not going to be way back like to respond as well? I mean, the question on the table is whether or not this is going to lead uh, to irreparable damage in the transatlantic alliance. I mean, what's happening here is we're being put in a position where we have to defend Donald Trump. No, we, I, I don't, we, I don't we, think we, that's the case. I think you were given a description that clearly answered the question that's been floating around. What is this dissolution of values? And is it, is it a cancer that's permanent? No, but and to, to talk about what the Trump administration is doing and that what we don't like 
has to be linked to the claim that this is going to undermine the transatlantic relationship. And they're not making that argument at all. And to the extent that they talk about the transatlantic relationship, they give out arguments that support our position. Are you making that argument? You're... No, absolutely not. The point I'm making, very simply, is that the actions of this government are so toxic and so disruptive and so destructive that they will undermine the cohesion There's and the no allegiance that we feel that. in the United States. Yes, There's there no is. evidence. Look at what's happening to NATO. But if you blow up our entire surroundings as you reinforce NATO's eastern We have been blowing up your surroundings for over a decade now. I rest my case. Exactly. I rest my case. Thank you. And it has no effect on the transatlantic relationship. Yes, it does. That's exactly our point. So the relationship before this has been going on for 20 years, but at least the relationship, there was a decency at the level of leadership, which doesn't exist anymore, and it permeates the whole society. It's a cancer for the whole society. Did I feed the word cancer into this conversation? Yes. I, I, as a moderator, I'm not supposed to do that. So. Okay. I want you to step forward, please, yeah. and tell us who you are. So, Natalie Tocci from the Institute for International Affairs. Americans may indeed have an interest, certainly Europeans have an interest to seeing Americans remain in Europe, and Americans may indeed have that interest too. But given that their big strategic challenge is China moving forward, perhaps not today or tomorrow, but will the United States have the ability to remain in Europe as it is today? Thank you. Carla, do you want to take that? The Europeans' willingness to do more on terrorism is actually enabling the United States to pivot more towards China. And Europeans spending increasingly more on defense will also free up resources for the United States to focus attention elsewhere. John, quickly. Yeah, I think it is possible 30 or 40 years from now, if China continues to grow at an impressive economic rate, that it will become so powerful militarily that the United States will have no choice but to pivot completely out of Europe and put virtually all its military assets in Asia. But that's a long way off. And for the foreseeable future, the United States clearly has the capability to contain China in Asia and at the same time maintain substantial forces in Europe. Thanks. Hi, my name is Nemesada Kropanovaki. Uh, as a Brit, I want to bring Brexit into this debate. Thank you. So we're assuming that they're just two actors, but actually Europe is multifaceted. How do you feel the UK's withdrawal from the EU will impact the transatlantic relationship? Thank Let's you. Let's take that first to Federica. Well, Federica. first of all, we still don't know whether Brexit is going to take place at all. <laughs> whether the UK exit or not, it's a weak actor, even if it stays, it's way weaker than it used to be, which undermines the, the strength of the United States arguments within Europe because the relationship has played in favor of the US and they don't have it. So this is part of the general disintegration trends we were talking about. Other side, John? Britain is still going to have extensive economic relations with the European continent and with the United States. And in terms of security, Britain is not pulling out of NATO. That is what matters the most. Sir. Thomas Kleine-Brockhoff, German Marshall Fund. Question to Carla and John. When the United States first entered Europe in 1917, it confronted great powers. It was a great power war, same in the Second World War. Please adjust your interest-based argument of the United States staying in Europe to the reality of European absolute decline. Isn't it the case that the U.S. interest 
in Europe is much weaker than it used to be and couldn't America care less about Europe even if Europe was threatened by okay. Russia? Carla. I'm actually not really a declinist. I, d I don't think that the United States is in decline to the extent that, that people presuppose. Okay, Europe. Okay, so Europe is in decline and therefore your question is? As I understood the question, doesn't that provide less incentive for the United States to give a damn? Okay, I think that's it. <laughs> Just cutting um, to the chase, sorry. <laughs> it's what I do. <laughs> Okay, that's just so surprising to me, and I assume the opposite, because usually the argument is that the United States is in decline, and so um, Europeans can actually do more to tend to their own security. Okay, I'm going go to go on to another question. Um, sir. The question is actually the transatlantic relationship has been irreparably damaged. Not the transatlantic alliance, the transatlantic relationship. And I respectfully submit that the United States much of our relationship post-1945 and the Marshall Plan was based on moral legitimacy. And in Europe, the United States has lost its moral legitimacy. And that is what I think is the profound change. Okay, and so you, you've noticed actually a deliberate choice of words in our resolution. So thank you for doing that, and I'd like to take it to John Mearsheimer. Yeah, I don't think that the American commitment to Europe was based on moral values. The American commitment to Europe from roughly 1949 forward was based on pure strategic interests. The fact of the matter is we wanted to get out of Europe after World War II, and we left in good part. And during the 1950s, the historiography shows very clearly the Eisenhower administration wanted to leave. One of the reasons that we promoted the European Coal and Steel Union was so that the Italians, the British, the French, and the Germans could come together, form a cohesive whole, and they could deal with the Soviet Union, and we could go home, right? It was pure strategic interest. What drives American foreign policy over time is nothing but naked strategic interest. And we cover it up all the time with moral rhetoric that's very popular here in Europe, but has very little to do with how we actually behave. Okay, let's hear from your opponents. Yeah, uh, I'm sorry, Sean. But to say that the European Coal and Steel community has been promoted by the US is grossly representing history and reality. They supported because they saw the strength of the project because they saw it would reinforce Europe against communism. This is an all-European initiative. Because the Europeans understood, they understood that the only way to stop a war was to put the Europeans work together on what were, at the time, the two most important issues, because coal at the time was, had the same importance as oil today. But that was a European initiative, and the U.S. supported, supported the process of European integration up to the Kennedy administration. I disagree on the history, but I would just say to you, if you're correct, you're telling a story where European interests and American interests came together, not values. And that concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our resolution is the transatlantic relationship has been irreparably damaged. Now we move on to round three, and round three are closing statements by each debater in turn, and making her closing statement in support of the resolution, the transatlantic relationship has been irreparably damaged. Federica Bindi, professor at the University of Rome, Tor Regatta. When we put in our analysis love and beliefs, and we let them guide us, chances are the analysis is not correct. Add to this the fact that we are small human beings in a much larger course of history. So Costanza talked about the troubles which oppressing us. That reminds me 
the late years of the Roman Empire. In 395, when Theodosio decided to split the empire into parts and give it to his sons, he thought he would do the good thing for the empire. Instead, it doomed it. It was the beginning of the end. But they did not understand it at the time. Fast forward. I, as an academic in the family, I inherited my great-grandfather's library. He was an, a scholar of colonialism. So I basically pay a rent just to keep the books there. At the end of a colonial empire, the belief of the colonialists was that colonialism was good and for good. And luckily, it was not. The reason why the UK, one of the reasons why the UK did not enter in the European colonial community is because they had the empire. And they thought that would last forever. But if you read historians like Neil Ferguson, it was clear at the time that colonialism was doomed. So what I'm saying, I don't like it. But a cycle is finished. Where are we going next? I don't know. Federico Bindi. Our next speaker will be speaking against the motion. Again, the floor I give to Carla Norloff, professor at the University of Toronto. So I think that we've strayed somewhat from the central question, which is what counts as irreparable damage. Neither my partner here nor I care to defend the particular ethics of the Trump administration. But it seems to me that the United States has throughout the years, and certainly uh, since the, uh, the second Bush administration, we've had this conversation about the moral rectitude of the United States. It's in the nature of great powers to be held to certain standards. And I'm not saying that they shouldn't be, but sometimes it's simply the dissatisfaction of the great power pursuing its own fundamental interest when they do not align with their partners. I still fail to see what the Trump administration, actually the concrete steps that they have taken so far, how it's damaged the fundamentally strong relationship between America and Europe. We might not like the way that the Trump administration is behaving or the way that he negotiates, but how actually has it damaged to the point of it becoming irreparable? I do not see that. Thank you, Colin Nola. Our next speaker making a closing statement, Constance Stiltzenmuller, senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, to make her closing statement against the resolution. The reason why I closed my opening statement with a reference to Rachel Carson's Silent Spring was that I think we need to begin thinking of international relations not as just great power competition, not just as economic interdependence, which we all consider separately but as an ecosystem where all these things flow together and where very small events and failures can have ultimately catastrophic consequences. I also don't want to pin the problems that we are talking about on individuals or even on one single administration, whether in America or here in Europe, although there would be enough to keep us going. Why do the values matter? because of the people who are responding to the breaking of the taboos, because of the people who are feeling enabled, who are surging gleefully, raucously, and marching on the streets because they think their time has come. 
whether it's neo-Nazis in Dortmund or in Eastern Germany, or whether it's thugs with tiki torches in Charlottesville, whether it is a German neo-Nazi who holds a gun to the head of a German elected politician and pulls the trigger. These people feel enabled by these taboos being broken. And that is what distinguishes this moment in our relationship and not in the alliance, which we will not be able to keep separate from that fact. Thank you, Constance Muller. And now making his closing statement against the resolution, John Mearsheimer, professor at the University of Chicago. The fact of the matter is that the shifting of the tectonic plates that she describes, both in terms of the international system and in terms of domestic politics, just hasn't taken place. The United States remains a vibrant liberal democracy. Does it have problems even though Donald Trump is the president? Yes. But the United States has had lots of problems over time. When I was a young kid, McCarthyism was in the air. I'm not denying for one second that Donald Trump is a real problem. He is one person, and there is huge opposition in the United States to him. And when I come here to Europe and go to places like Britain and travel around the continent, I think in most places, liberal democracy is alive and well, reflected in the comments of you two. So I think the crisis you see is just not there, at least yet. And in terms of the international system, the rise of China may present an excellent opportunity for the United States and Europe to work together to deal with the Chinese economic threat. But the idea that the system is changing, the international system is changing in ways that undermine the alliance, I find that hard to understand. It will change somewhat, for sure, but I think it will remain firmly intact. And it certainly won't be irreparably damaged. Thank you, John Mearsheimer. And that concludes round three of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our resolution is the transatlantic relationship has been irreparably damaged. So I now have the final results. Remember, once again, you voted before you heard the arguments. Again, after you heard the arguments, you voted again. And we give victory to the team whose numbers have changed the most between the first and the second vote. Here are the results. On the resolution, the transatlantic relationship has been irreparably damaged before the debate in polling the live audience. 20% agreed with the resolution. 73% were against. 7% were undecided. In the second vote, Again, the transatlantic relationship has been irreparably damaged. The team in their first vote was 20%. Their second vote was 24%. They pulled up four percentage points. That's the number to beat. The team arguing against the resolution, their first vote was 73%. Their second vote was 71%. They lost two percentage points. That means the, the team winning the debate is the team arguing for the resolution. In favor of the motion, the transatlantic relationship has been irreparably damaged. My congratulations to them. Thank you for me, John Donovan, and Intelligence Squared US. We'll see you next time. Thank you, everybody. This was really a pleasure, and hope to see you again. These debates are made possible by generous contributions from listeners like you and with support from the Rosencrantz Foundation. Leah Mathau is Chief Content Officer, Shay O'Mara is Manager of Editorial Operations, Aaron Dalton and Rob Christensen are the radio producers, Damon Whittemore is the audio engineer, and I'm your host, John Donvan. <laughs>